Hello, and welcome back to the Cuse Conversations podcast. My name is John Boccasino, the communications specialist in Syracuse University's Office of Alumni Engagement. I'll go back to my, my graduate education. One of the great things I, I found was the 1929 Carnegie study on intercollegiate athletics. I literally was in the library uh, on the Hill reading that and, and writing one of my papers. And you go back and you look over a hundred years time of the change in college athletics. So when that report was written, the Southeastern Conference didn't exist. And, and over time, there has been constant change in college sports. And I have the benefit of having studied the history of college sport and in many ways lived it, probably making some of it right now. So I don't have discomfort with the challenges we face. In fact, I think we have to lean into those challenges. Greg Sankey is the commissioner of arguably the most powerful college athletics conference in the country, the Southeastern Conference, home to the college football national champion in 11 of the past 15 years. But before Greg was tasked with presiding over the SEC, he was a proud Central New Yorker who earned his master's degree in education from the School of Education at Syracuse University in 1993. Greg has a fantastic story to share here on the podcast, and we are so pleased that he made the time to join us. Greg, how are you holding up these days? You know, it's the middle of football season, so you know every Saturday is its own adventure, but we're doing well, thank you. Fall and football go so well together. What is it like for you being the commissioner over such a powerhouse conference where you guys dominate in football year after year? Yeah, it's one of those things. You know, I grew up in the central New York area and, you know, go back to Archibald Stadium days and, you know, have early memories of like an Independence Bowl appearance by Syracuse in the mid 70s with Bill Hurley at quarterback. Uh, When the dome was first constructed, first built, uh, my parents took me to an Army-Navy game. And then in the mid-80s, uh, Nebraska came in ranked number one in Syracuse, you know, pulled off one of the great upsets. One of the, the funny realities is I was part of, um, you know, the fans who rushed the field. And your reference to the Alabama game, I know the commissioner who issues fines for teams who have fans rushing the field. Um, but the, the, um, the centrality of the university in, in the central New York area, the upstate New York area, actually had a lot of meaning to me. So you, you, you play that forward. And um, I'd always imagined being part of something maybe a little bit bigger than myself. And I guess I've pretty much found like the max effort of being part of something bigger yourself, which is SEC football. You know, it's, it's year round in many ways. We're about halfway through the season. It's a remarkable competitive endeavor, but a remarkable cultural reality to be part of the Southeastern Conference. College football, the people who have never gone to, uh, I've never been fortunate enough to go to SEC country uh, outside of a game at LSU with Syracuse a couple of years ago. It's such a unique atmosphere. How can you describe the bond between college football and on a college campus with the community, with the students, especially in the heart of the SEC? I think part of it goes back to, we, we have a tagline we created for our, our advertising that, that it just means more, which is not an insult or a slight to anyone else. It's in a way a recognition of the importance of the Southeastern Conference universities in our states and throughout the region. I think nationally now as they've continued to expand their enrollment and alumni reach. Um, and then it goes back to what happens in our athletics programs, given the visibility 
uh, within those states. Those, in many ways, are the lights set upon a hill uh, that that there weren't NFL teams, there weren't a lot of Major League Baseball teams, and this affinity developed and was passed generationally, and it still exists today, even though there have been changes uh, within our region, culturally, um, demographically. Um, and, and so here we are with this, this prominent set of universities attached to athletics programs, and then this sport of football that has historic roots in the Northeast, but migrated to the South pretty quickly. And we, we actually told that story on a, what we call a film series labeled SEC Story in 2019. It was you know, Saturdays in the South going back to the post-Civil War era and then the formation of this league in 32, 33. Um, and I think that attachment's developed over time. When I first moved here, uh, I was going to Columbia, South Carolina. They were playing the University of Virginia. So it was a non-conference game. Lou Holtz was coaching South Carolina. And I had seen things on TV, but I'd never experienced it in person. And this was in uh, 2003. And as I drove up to, to Williams-Brice Stadium, it was full. And South Carolina had had a really bad record the year before. And so I expected, you know, 40,000, 50,000. And that place was full. And then I end up at Kentucky, which is like a basketball school. And they had a 73,000 stadium, seat stadium. It was full. And my dad came down um, to New Orleans when Syracuse won the Final Four. And, and we went up to Baton Rouge for a baseball game on the Sunday between the semifinals and the championships. We got out of the car in Baton Rouge to go to baseball. And he just stood there looking at Tiger Stadium. He's like, that place is huge. Like, yeah, and there's a whole bunch more of them around this. And I, and I think it just expresses the scope of what we do, but it's, it's centered in what our universities mean and the visibility that it attaches in, in a symbiotic way between the academy and the athletic programs. I'm glad you brought up the relationship between the campus community and the athletics programs <laughs> themselves, because that, that bond has really been challenged during COVID-19. There were so many difficult decisions that athletic administrators and chancellors and presidents had to make. We're 20 months out of the pandemic and we're still dealing with ramifications. What was it like trying to guide your conference through this unprecedented pandemic? Um, that's a really good question. And I asked myself any number of times, uh, why did you pick this line of work? Uh, because that wasn't exactly what I signed up for. Um, you know, we, we tried to I tried to think through what was ahead and to do so early on. So even when we had to stop, we had a set of press releases from, hey, we're going to play, everything's fine, to we're going to stop. But imagining what's on the other side of either end of that spectrum, then we had a bunch of options in between, was really difficult. So when we did stop, the first question was, how will you come back to activity? And that was an enormous question. Probably did not understand the enormity of it in mid-March of 2020. But as the summer went on, um, we, we, we really, when you have, um, you know, Wolf Blitzer wants you to appear on CNN or, um, you know, the White House wants to reach out or governors across our region and even some outside our region, when high school athletic association directors would call and say, look, whether we play high school football or not, we're going to follow what the SEC does. So your decisions important to us. So that just kind of mounted. And, and, you know, I broke it down and I think my education was of benefit here since we're, we're talking about my experience in Syracuse. A lot of my, my, my reading 
and learning from a, philosoph a philosophy of being a lifelong learner helped so that we could understand where our campus leaders were and their willingness to try to move forward to engage the right kind of medical experts to provide as much clarity as possible. But to understand at some point, you're going to have to make a decision based on judgment. The, the data wasn't ever going to show you a clear pathway because we've, we've had to learn so much about COVID-19. And, um, you know, candidly for me as a leader, there's a point where I made my peace with whether we're going to play or not, it was going to fall on me. Uh, right or wrong um, is, is kind of the centerpiece of that decision-making process. And um, I'm grateful we tried. It was important to our student athletes. The young people on our teams asked for the opportunity. And you realize that when time passes, it's not as if we could just take a year off, come back and everything's the same. So, you know, Devontae Smith winning the Heisman Trophy. Last August, that was on no one's radar screen. Uh, the University of Kentucky winning the SEC's first ever national championship in women's volleyball. You know, they, they were highly ranked, but because we played, that happened. We had a young woman, Sarah Fisher, kicking a football game that seemed like a small thing. And to think about what had to happen to make that possible um, was actually enormous. And I could go on through those experiences to say so much positive happened because we tried. And one of the real points of decision was, was the word connection the connection of our communities to our athletics programs, the connection of our student athletes to their academic endeavors, or their athletic aspirations, the connection of the, the general public to something normal. All of those were factors in the conversation. And you know, we weren't perfect in our decision-making, but I think we were really, really effective in coming to uh, an appropriate conclusion. Well, and it's, it's interesting to hear you talking about the different factors that were considered. And obviously you didn't take this lightly when it comes to student athlete safety, coaching safety, athletic trainer safety. There's so many lives that literally were hanging in the balance. And there was pressure that was put on you too. You mentioned the president of the United States is calling and, and reaching out saying, there's got to be a way to get football going in the fall. That had to be such a surreal moment for you, Greg, to have the leader of the free world taking time during a pandemic to say, hey, we need SEC football. And we ended up on a couple of calls with the vice president. Uh, I, I, I asked our governors, uh, our senators um, in, in the White House to just let us make a decision, to not put us in the middle of a political fight, which was really a wise approach. And I give a lot of people credit for honoring that request. Now, we are going to have conversations, but I thought, I thought that was, was really important. And I wasn't in this alone. So for me, um, a couple of things happened that were enormously important. First of all, in, in March, when we stopped and had to start, we stopped everything. That meant no practice. We were much more extreme in our stopping than our other colleague conferences. Others continued with some level of activity. And so we we're going to start with Zoom activity for team meetings because we'd sent everybody home on, on Friday, March 13th. No more practices, no more weight rooms, no more strength and conditioning activities, no more con competitions. Um, and when we did that, we had to start. And so the first start was team meetings virtually. Well, we had had a video um, staff member on one of our campuses hospitalized, a young, relatively young person hospitalized and on a ventilator. And so you can imagine the ripple effect when we understood so little about COVID-19. How can you bring people in to facilitate video conversations? 
And so that was a really, really hard conversation. From that, I had a, a biostatistician who gave me really good advice in early April, which is, look, this is all new. If you look back a month and think about what you didn't know then that you do know now and play that forward 30, 60, 90 days, the longer you wait, the better information you'll have. And the better information you'll have, you'll be able to make better decisions, but you won't have complete information. So we pivoted from that advice to kind of a Colin Powell quote that said, tell me what you know, tell me what you don't know, and then you can tell me what you think. And we would walk through these exercises with our athletics directors and our presidents and chancellors and say, okay, here's what we know. And it was a really short list when we started. Here's what we don't know, a very long list. And here's what we think, which was in between the two. And as we went week by week, we could alter what was on, on the list. So for example, in July, we had no ability to, to test for COVID-19 in a timely manner and receive results. And I know there was a game that, that Syracuse had last fall where the kickoff was delayed because of the timing of testing. And so we had to take, hey, we don't know how to achieve this. We think we can achieve timely testing to knowing what we could do. And so we went out and hired an outside logistics firm. We worked with doctors to set up a timing regimen. I called our presidents from that in early July, spent the entire weekend on the phone. And all of them said, look, we can be patient and we're going to work to open our campuses. And that's our priority. So we need you to think about how football uh, would operate around our campuses, not our campuses around football, which wasn't the narrative. And around that same time, we had a Washington Post article where we were working to provide medical information to our football players. And somebody recorded the conversation and all of a sudden there's a Washington Post article about a leaked recording. And that's enormously uncomfortable. And that's not as if somebody's doing that to help you play football, right? That's, that's not one of those great moments. And my, my first 15 minutes of that uh, of learning that were, you know, concern, you kind of get the knot in your stomach. And I said, you know what? I'm absolutely proud that we did that. We gave honest answers to tough questions and we told them the truth. And when we didn't have answers, we told them. And that's uncomfortable. But you know what? That's life. And so you fast forward through all of that. We came to late July. We pushed the start of our season back later than anyone else who kept the opportunity to play. We wanted to spread out preparation to keep people healthy. And then to move three weeks beyond Labor Day weekend and the opening of all of our campuses, because we'd learned from Memorial Day and July 4th, you'd have these upticks about two or three weeks later in the COVID rate. And then once we started, we played three weeks with no disruption at all last year. And that didn't happen in any other league, college or professional, to any, in any sport that I know of. And, and so that built momentum. And I knew for the SEC, to your point earlier about our visibility and our strength, if we had a set of problems simultaneous with others having problems, that would magnify the pressure to just stop everything. And if we stopped everything, I use the word connection and the word opportunity. That connection goes away, that opportunity goes away, and you can lose people in that process. And, and there was a lot said about money and TV and ticket sales. We really put that in the background and said, you know, can we play? And then if we can, how? And um, those were not comfortable moments. I will, I will just tell you that. There was a lot of lost sleep, um, a, a lot of uh, weight loss on my part because the days went by so quickly. Uh, but uh, in, in many ways, I'm proud of what we collectively achieved. And, you know, the, the championship in football, volleyball, we have nine national champion trophies out in our lobby representing what we did in a breadth of sports in the Southeastern Conference. 
one of the key linchpins that you relied on was that lifelong learning instilled at you at Syracuse University during your time as a graduate student. Are there any lessons you can specifically recall from the classroom that really helped to navigate through, again, this unprecedented time? Yeah, I was, I was really fortunate because I had a lot of flexibility. So my degree hangs on my wall here, um, a master's in education. And my first class in the fall of 87, I had just finished my undergraduate degree at Cortland. And um, I, was in, I was in a building. I wish my memory is good enough to tell you what building, but a class in the School of, of, of uh, Education. It was Foundations of Higher Education. And I just have to be honest, I have no clue. I had no clue what we're talking about. So it was like me, a first semester uh, master's degree student. And the job I took was at Utica College. And Utica allowed me to attend Syracuse on remitted tuition. And and I never envisioned being an intramural director at Utica College. That wasn't my career goal. (laughs) But to have the opportunity to earn a degree at Syracuse, given where I grew up and kind of that city on a hill philosophy was enormously important. And it altered my decision making process. Um, So that very first semester, we end up in small group conversations about the foundations of higher education. As I said, I had no clue. And it kind of comes my turn to contribute. I said, look, I can't help you in this conversation. I don't know enough right now, but if you'll be patient with me, I promise as we move to the end of the semester, I'll make a contribution. Fast forward to the end of the semester and I made a contribution. And and one of my, my classmates who was I think working in a doctoral uh, program at the time said, that's the most honest answer I've ever heard anyone provide in this setting. The ability to say, look, I just don't know enough to help. And, and that's one of those moments that I think has reflected, and I can go to the pandemic preparation to say, we had to say what we knew and what we didn't know. And there was no sense in trying to make things up. And it goes back to that experience. You know, it's okay to say, I don't know. Now you can't just sit there and say forever, I don't know, you have a responsibility to become informed so that you can answer the question. So, so that was one. I, I have a, a book in my office written by, by Tom Peters, uh, Thriving on Chaos. He was a business author. And I was introduced to that in an educational leadership class um, that was part of my master's program. And that opening up to kind of business writing and leadership writing and literally, in, in some ways, using the title of that book, We Thrived on Chaos last year as an organization, uh, the result of which is, you know, we've announced the addition of the University of Texas, University of Oklahoma in the coming years. Um, our, our TV ratings this fall have been, in many ways, astronomical uh, from expectations. So we, we have thrived on that. Those were incredibly important lessons. And then at the end of my master's program, I had to engage in internship. And so visiting with my faculty advisor, it could be as short as six weeks working around upstate New York in some setting around sports. And that was my my idea. But I just sent resumes out. In fact, I applied at the Syracuse Athletic Department to be an intern. I ended up in all places, Northwestern State University, a place called Natchitoches, Louisiana, made $500 a month. And in many ways, um, when I took that job at Utica College, I was asked when I was going to begin my master's program. And my boss asked me that on the athletic director, then Jim Spartano. And and I said, look, I want to take a year off. I've been in college. I just want to do my job. He said, if you don't start your master's now, you never will. Well, and looking back and connecting the dots between early career, my higher education, and what's happened since, that was the most important career advice I was ever given. 
because I started in, I ended up in that foundations of higher ed class where I had to say, I don't know. I ended up pursuing an internship and leaving central New York for the first time in my life and moving to Louisiana in late July, where it was hotter than anything I'd ever experienced. Um, but I learned a lot of lessons and it created um, a lot of opportunity and you never see that experience up front, but looking back that, that two year period of my life, um, driving from Utica weekly to, to attend my master's classes, coming back on weekends to spend time in the library because we weren't exactly connected over the internet for research purposes. And then, you know, having the confidence to take the leap into an internship, you know, a world away from me has made all the difference in my career. What did you hope to achieve from the master's degree uh, attending Syracuse? What were you, what was Greg Sankey's goals back in the mid nineties, early nineties with that degree uh, to get obtained from Syracuse? Yeah, so my, my touch point with Syracuse goes back to the, really the 1975 final four. Um, it was John Wooden's last final four. When you look at it, who was kind of a heroic figure to me and, you know, most of what you listened to then on the NCAA tournament was, you know, on the radio. Um, and so I can remember listening to the early rounds of the tournament. Syracuse was in the ECAC back then. Uh, but that was a moment where I probably made the connection between um, sports and education in a real way. And I was um, uh, about I was 10 years old, about to turn 11 that summer. And so from that moment, and, you know, I talked about, you know, Bill Hurley and the Independence Bowl, which I think was the 76 season thereabouts, being in the Dome for the, the win over Nebraska, um, having the opportunity to, to see intercollegiate athletics. Um, that was aspirational for me. Not that I was going to be an athlete. I think I probably envisioned myself uh, being an athlete at, at some point um, at a high level, but I was an NAIA baseball player, as it turned out. Uh, so my, my aspiration, my goal was to have a degree from Syracuse University. That was a, a point of pride that was just etched in my mind early on. And I, I certainly could have earned a master's degree any place, uh, but I'm enormously proud of that uh, opportunity that, that was presented to me and the accomplishment. And, and I think the, the real answer to the question, if you're talking to the 22-year-old me, is, well, I just want to get my master's degree, right? You don't think about the learning. Uh, but as I look back, you know, the foundations of higher education, I'm, I'm right out of college, just thinking about uh, the interaction with faculty, um, missional issues on campuses, something as simple as deferred maintenance. You know, I ended up taking a class in the finance of higher education. And lo and behold, I have a big role now in the finance of higher education. And <laughs> almost by, by, by happenstance, I encountered this opportunity that was, hey, earn the degree so I can put it on my wall and was so much more substantive for me in ways I didn't imagine in my early 20s. It has continually played out throughout my career, even to this day in my late 50s. So then connect the dots for us. How do you go from getting your master's degree at Syracuse and moving down to Louisiana to work at a, at a smaller school to then going from there to the SEC where they appoint you in 2015 to take over as a commissioner? That's um, a good question. I'll try to be as efficient as possible. So literally my first career decision was th that opportunity to work at Utica College and, and earn my master's at Syracuse. Huge deal. Then I, I take the leap. My wife and I had been married eight months. She was generally from upstate New York. She had, her parents had moved to Northern Virginia. And we end up eight months into our marriage moving to Natchitoches, Louisiana, 
Um, I was, I spent time there as an intern. They had some NCA compliance trouble. I became the director of compliance. I was also the men's golf coach, uh, almost by happenstance. I had this philosophy that if someone was going to ask if I wanted to do something, there was one right answer, as long as it wasn't morally objectionable or illegal, I'd say, yeah. So I, I ended up the golf coach because somebody asked me one day and I won an award. And then after a few years there in their conference, the Southland conference, which interestingly enough, that independence ball that I spoke of, the opponent for Syracuse was McNeese State University, which ended up being a school in, in the Southland Conference when I was its commissioner. Um, and so they had an opening for an assistant commissioner in the compliance area. That would have been 92. I applied, went through an interview process and was hired. And then I moved up. And in, in 1996, the commissioner, a guy named Britt Banowski, who eventually was the commissioner of Conference USA and now works for the College Football Playoff Foundation, he left the Southwest, Southland Conference to go to work for the old Southwest Conference. Um, he came back to be our commissioner. And then when the Big 12 Conference started, he went to work for them. I was 31 years old and was selected uh, as the Southland Conference as their commissioner. And uh, I don't think you should... You know, and looking back, I'm not sure a 31-year-old should be a Division One conference commissioner, but I was off Broadway. I got to meet people, um, got to learn things, got to make mistakes, um, and it was just um, an incredible experience. But I came to know a guy named Mike Slive. Turns out Mike was the conference, of, uh, the conference USA commissioner, but Mike grew up in Utica, New York. So you remember that first job I took in <laughs> Utica? And we were at a reception at an NCA meeting one time in the mid-90s, and he asked me to tell this story. And when I told him my first job was at Utica College, he said, well, I grew up in Utica. And that struck, we, we created a relationship out of that one time. I went to eat at a place called uh, Pelletier, I think it's Pelletier Joe's. Joe's Restaurant is what he told me in Utica. And I was up there for a meeting driving to Newport, Rhode Island. My wife and I went to to Joe's and I told Mike about it. And I've said, I think that was the most significant decision in my career because Mike was eventually hired as the Southeastern Conference Commissioner. And I had called him one day because I was a finalist for his old job. And he said, look, uh, I don't know what's going on there, but I have a job here. Would you, would you be interested in the opportunity? And I'd not been at the big, big level of college sports. And it was an associate commissioner for compliance here. And I moved in 02. I thought it was a pretty good leap just you know, the compliance world in the SEC had any number of challenges, uh, but a really important growth experience. I almost came back. In fact, we, we had decided to move back to Colgate as the athletic director in 2004. And I, I uh, got uncomfortable that weekend and I had to make one of those 8 a.m. calls to say, remember that job I said I'd take at the press conference at noon? That's not going to happen. I'm going to stay where I am. So uh, they've obviously thrived without me, and and uh, it was a tough moment. But I, I stayed here. I had a couple opportunities, and you know when Mike announced his retirement, went through a pretty significant search. You know, hired a an international search firm, and and clearly distinguished myself. The presidents and chancellors moved me moved me into the commissioner's role, and uh, you know the the world has spun around pretty rapidly ever since. How would you describe to somebody who doesn't have a background in athletics? What exactly you do on a day-to-day -day basis as commissioner of the SEC? <laughs> yeah. Probably like any CEO, you start out with a list of things you want to pursue that day very intentionally. And by about 8.30 in the morning, something lands in your lap that blows it apart. Um, you know, we, we have uh, just over 40 staff here. We have uh, 14 universities right now. Our office last year 
in revenue set a record. Um, so it's, it's leadership, um, setting the strategy and vision for the league, uh, working through our, our media relationships, uh, overseeing our leadership team, uh, spend a lot of time working uh, for our presidents and chancellors, but with our athletics directors. Uh, I, I'm out on the road every week trying to develop uh, intercollegiate athletics nationally. You know, it's not a secret. There are a set of challenges that are piled up, whether it's name, image, and likeness, litigation we face, the, the need for the NCAA to adapt to modern realities. Um, I've been a part of discussions that I think are important discussions related to the expansion of the college football playoff format. Um, those can, all of those issues can fill a day pretty rapidly, not to mention the, the crises de jour that pop up on, on my plate. So it's, um, you know, central, central role is leadership, looking at strategy and vision, both for us and connecting that to national realities around college sports. You mentioned earlier, uh, one of the real breaking news stories from college athletics was Texas and Oklahoma joining the already loaded SEC conference starting in 2025. And there's fears about super conferences and power plays where schools will, you know, you'll, you might lose some of the smaller conferences. It seems like there is an, a, a realignment taking place in college athletics do you think we're heading in that direction where there's going to be the few super conferences or can we still have the Southlands? Can we still have the, the WACs and, and the other conferences that are existing? I'll go back to my, my graduate education. One of the great things I, I found was the 1929 Carnegie study on intercollegiate athletics. I literally was in the library uh, on the Hill reading that and, and writing one of my papers. And you go back and you look over a hundred years time of the change in college athletics. So when that report was written, the Southeastern conference didn't exist. And, and over time there have, there has been constant change in college sports. And I have the benefit of having studied the history of college sport and in many ways lived it, probably making some of it right now. So I don't have discomfort with the challenges we face. In fact, I think we have to lean into those challenges. To, to the specifics of your question, I don't think that has to be exclusionary. The conference where I worked for 11 years has lost members. That has nothing to do with Texas and Oklahoma moving to the Southeastern Conference. The Ohio Valley Conference has lost members. That has nothing to do with members joining the Southeastern Conference. It has to do with universities and colleges finding the fit and the relationships that are right for them in the current environment. So back to your question about my job, part of my job is to make certain that we're one step ahead so that our members are confident in our ability to meet their needs. Um, that said, I, I don't think that this, I've always thought the SEC was a super conference, but that's completely biased. So that's like my, 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 my hype line, if you will. One of, my, one of my missions, one of my focus points for a 10-year vision when I went through the interview process to become commissioner of the Southeastern Conference was they asked me, hey, what's this thing going to look like in 10 years? And so the vision said that we want to do things so well in the SEC with a sustained level of excellence and achievement that people are attracted to us, whether it's media wanting to ask, how do you do this? Whether it's faculty and business schools asking, we'd like to engage in a case study about your success. Whether it's peers asking, 
can they learn from us or maybe they'll want to be a part of us just so that we're prepared, that we meet the expectations of excellence because excellence is attractive. Um, that's my job. That doesn't mean that there's some grand plan to, to double our membership and, and capture the world. You could probably read that on the internet. Uh, but from a regional standpoint, from the nature of the university standpoint, the University of Oklahoma and the University of Texas are much like the bulk of our membership. They want to make a high-level commitment to college athletics. They want to make sure there's still a connection to education. They want to achieve the national championship standard. So I think that affiliation was natural. And, and speaking of those opportunities, you did also mention name, image, and likeness. And there's been a debate that's raged on for decades since the NCAA uh, maintain the amateur status of its student athletes. What are your thoughts on the implementation of name, image, and likeness? And is this going to be a slope that eventually one day leads to student athletes directly getting paid uh, for attending college? But to the end of that question, I don't think it automatically leads to that outcome. Uh, there are plenty of opinions. There are legislators in Congress who have that thought. There are litigators who want to see something uh, akin to your question being answered with a yes. Uh, but I, I take a step back. So again, go back to the history that I've been able to encounter. If you go back to some of those studies 100 years ago, compensation, support, uh, healthcare around student athletes was front and center. Then it's front and center now. Um, what has happened is a change driven by state laws. Uh, and that has to be remembered, that has opened up economic opportunity for student-athletes. That was the leading edge, was state laws being changed. And then this summer, we had a Supreme Court decision that, you know, in short said, the NCAA's rules are going to be subject to full antitrust scrutiny moving forward. That means we have no choice but to adapt. So is change expected? It is. And if I take the COVID environment where we dealt with uncertainty, and had to find our way through uncertainty, we are dealing with uncertainty now relative to how the scholarship models existed for years. That's changing. And now we're going to have to work forward to figure out what are the right structures, what is legally defensible, where might we have Congress engaged? Because I think there are some really important issues that are missed. So there are celebrations around somebody signing a name, image, and likeness deal or articles about guess who made how much money from their NIL, NIL opportunities. But a couple things. We've had dozens of businesses rush into this space with no regulatory oversight. So as colleges have been criticized about exploitation, there is literally no oversight of the business who's, who, quote, are guiding our student-athletes end of quote, through their economic opportunities. And guess what? Those businesses are not doing this as a charitable exercise. So we have to be careful about the exploitation present there. That's point one. Point two, if you're a high school senior right now, highly recruited, you have to educate yourself about two dozen state laws. If you're recruited nationally, you don't have the luxury of just deciding, hey, here's a scholarship offer. I need to think about the coach at the university and the climate and the, the arena in which I'm going to play and how many times I'll be on TV. Now you're trying to analyze economic uh, realities around state laws. That seems enormously unfair to a young person and his family trying to make a decision at, at this point in their lives. And that screams for a uniform standard so that people can make decisions effectively and have opportunities consistently around the use of their name, image, and likeness and have some level of consumer protection 
for those activities. Um, that's why I think Congress has to engage. When the Supreme Court says essentially the NCA is limited in its ability to regulate the need for federal law to create that balance that I just talked about and other benefits uh, for college athletics and most importantly, the participant in co participants in college athletics, uh, I'm an advocate that, that Congress has to engage. I feel strongly that that kind of change is important for us. The SEC and its student athletes are certainly blessed to have a proud Syracuse alumnus leading the way as commissioner. And lest we let our audience uh, hold a secret back about you, Greg, you were an NAIA baseball player, but you're also an avid marathoner. So you fully understand the challenges yeah. of being an athlete. How did you get into being a marathon runner? And you know, what do you really derive when it comes to joy uh, from completing those marathons? Yeah, my running started back in, in, when I was in Utica, New York. I actually was preparing to run the Marine Corps Marathon. And one of the great oddities of my life is I was married on a Sunday, or excuse me, Saturday evening in D.C. And the next morning, that Sunday morning, back in 88, ran the, my first marathon. It was kind of a family coincidence because my brother ran with me and we knew he'd be there for the wedding. I actually had a moment um, in 97 where I ended up in the hospital. I'd been a conference commissioner. I was in my early 30s and just hadn't cared for myself well. So one of those one of those learning experiences that I would teach in, in a leadership course if I were a faculty member is how to how to engage in and care for your, your own self mentally and physically. And probably in the mid 2000s, I, I run some, but I just started with some marathon goals. I always run a, run a second. Once I run a, ran a second, even though it was about 15, 16 years from my first, I'm like, hey, I'm in pretty good shape. I should keep doing this. And it became my, my midlife crisis adventure. And you know, honestly, <laughs> in, in March of 20, when, when my gym shut down, where I was kind of in a CrossFit functional fitness workout, and I had to do something. So I started running again. And that played out where I ran for like 502 straight days, at least three and a half miles. And as, as much, in, fa in fact, I'd say more than the physical part, uh, running allows for clarity of thought. Um, you can run with a podcast or with music or just run silently with your thoughts. And, and I would, you know, 98% of the time run early in the morning, try to get my head around the pressures of the day or the expectations of the day, think through solutions. It was on a, on a run. Uh, besides Skinny Atlas Lake last May in 2020, where I kind of figured out the dates and the, the protocols for returning to strength and conditioning activity for bringing our student athletes back on campus in June. We had, had so many different opinions and really um, some, some difficult conversations. And on the run, I sorted through those thoughts. And that's the best illustration I have of, yep, it's great to get your heart rate up, keep your weight down, but the ability to, to think uh, clearly during a run is the great benefit for me. Well, Greg, it's been a pleasure having you on the podcast and telling your orange success story. Again, wish you nothing but the best of luck running the SEC and uh, maybe we'll get some more SEC Syracuse crossovers down the road. That'd be fun to bring your presence and your past to fruition. Tennessee and Syracuse are going to play in Atlanta in a few years in Mercedes-Benz Stadium. So look forward to that. I was uh, I was around the, the game in Baton Rouge. That was my plan. And then that was disrupted by scheduling conflict. So I watched from afar. And 
My first year here, Syracuse played Auburn in a sweet 16, and I realized my allegiance became who was paying my mortgage at the time. So that's my, <laughs> my current reality. Syracuse went on to win that, that matchup. And, uh, but I do pay attention in a unique way, given my, my ties to the community and, and my, my master's degree from Syracuse. And I'm, again, I'm much appreciative for having had the opportunity to earn that education um, at Syracuse University. Thanks for checking out the latest installment of the Cuse Conversations podcast. My name is John Boccasino signing off for the Cuse Conversations podcast. <laughs>